I want to introduce Pastor John Offit to you, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to give it a little bit of uh, something something first. Um, Pastor John Offit is basically uh, he, okay. It was a partnership between him and God, but basically the reason that that um, Soma exists, a large part of it is due to Pastor John Offit, and here's why. Melissa and I were, um, were just workers uh, in the church where he was pastoring, and uh, we led a, a, a junior and senior life group, and uh, we had a bunch of rambunctious teenagers at our house every week, and, uh, and then we um, kind of felt like we were called to be in the ministry. Melissa, we moved to Dallas. Melissa went to UT Arlington. I went to a ministry school called uh, Emmaus Road Ministry School. It was a nine-month uh, training school, and... Um, and then I uh, just was working, and Melissa was about to graduate, and, uh, and we were involved in the church up there. And um, some of you know, I, I used to play a little guitar and stuff like that, so I'd serve on worship teams and things like that. But that was kind of the extent of it, you know. Pick around on the guitar. We like to serve. Um, one day we get a call. Actually, we were visiting the home church, and we were, it was around Christmas time, uh, around December. And we were visiting our old church where Pastor John was at. And uh, he just kind of walked up to us and said, would you guys consider being considered for the youth pastor position here at the church? And we were like, <laughs> for real? <laughs> because for one, we were just really enjoying life in Dallas. You know, we were life in the fast lane. I mean, we were just living it up. We didn't want to come back to Podunk, Lindale, Texas, you know. Um, and our initial reaction was like, no, dude, we're living it up in Dallas but uh, God started stirring over several months, and, and John kept calling, and what do you guys think? Are you into it? And the Lord really started moving upon our life to, uh, um, to move back to East Texas and be the youth pastor. And, uh, and I just say, you know, um, I, I tell people this all the time, John, he literally took a chance on us. He saw something in there that might have, that, I don't know if it was like a flicker or what. It was a flicker of hope. But uh, he really, really stepped out on a limb, I think, um, and uh, gave us an opportunity that I, I just have been internally grateful for. And uh, not only that, but every day, every hour that we were there, we felt 100% support from him and uh, encouraging and all that stuff. So a large part, a large part, him and God, they were like, but... Uh, a large part of the reason you guys are sitting here enjoying uh, the fruit of uh, consistent, healthy ministry is because of Pastor John Offit. He and his wife, Carla, uh, and really their whole family just loved on us, supported us uh, in every kind of way. So um, I could say all kinds of other stuff about Pastor John, and, uh, and maybe I will sometime. But if you guys would give him a, a warm welcome... Man, after that kind of introduction, maybe we just need to pray and go home. And uh, it's like, thank you, good night. And uh, I tell you, it has been a blessing to us 
to be able to see how the Lord has used Tony and Melissa uh, here at Soma. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time, not because I get to come and share the word, but just to be able to come and, and worship with you guys, knowing Tony's heart the way I do about worship and uh, his passion about worship. One of the things that I knew as I was anticipating coming here uh, to be with you guys today was that we were going to be in the presence of the Lord uh, before I was able to even share the word with you. And I'm so excited about that. Uh, you know, you sang several, a couple of songs that, that kind of referred back to the presence of God and Moses in the olden times and ancient times. And I love that passage in the book of Exodus where he says, uh, do not let us go up from here if your presence does not go with us. And I believe that should be our prayer every single day. God, do not let us take a step if your presence does not go with us. And it's been a joy to be able to be able to worship with you this morning. I'm sitting here looking at my watch, and it's 1145, and uh, some of you guys are already, stomach's already growling. I know that. I understand that. At our church in Kentucky, uh, when it gets close to 12, people start getting fidgety. I mean, they, they just start getting irritated a little bit, and then when we hit 1230, they're just flat out mad. Uh, so uh, I am going to try to put in 30 minutes this morning about a two-hour concept that I want to be able to get into your mind uh, today. I kept asking Tony a few weeks ago, I said, is there a direction you want me to kind of deal with this week when I come? I said, what would you like for me to target? What would you like for me to speak? He says, no, I just want you to pray and ask the Lord to lay it upon your heart, which in one way you really appreciate. In another way, you don't want to come into somebody else's church and look like some guy that's just off the wall. So I really would like to have a little bit of direction, but he wouldn't give me any. So, uh, uh, last week, I called him and said, okay, here's what I feel like the Lord has laid on my heart. And I wanted to run this past him because what I am going to share with you this morning might be a little bit different than the way you have been taught earlier in your life. I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know what church background you come from. But I am aware that my perspective on what I'm going to teach you this morning is a little bit different than maybe many people have been taught. It's different than the way I was taught when I was your age. It was different when I was early in my ministry, the way that I was influenced. And then the Lord just kind of revealed Scripture to me through the, through the years that brought me to this place. So I went all through that with Tony because I did not want to come in here and teach something contrary to what he believes or what he teaches to you. And then he started sharing with me about a few months ago, you guys went through a series on the simplicity of the gospel. And then he started talking about prior to Easter, you went through the entire series on redemption and what it, what that meant and how that was applied to your life. And ironically, and it should not be ironically because the Lord does all things decently and in order, what I am going to teach you this morning lays perfectly upon the foundation that you guys have already been dealing with. You understand the gospel. You understand the gospel is about Jesus coming to die for your sin upon the cross. You understand redemption, that we have been covered by the blood of Christ. And now the new series, I believe, is what about me? I mean, how does that really apply to me? What difference does all of that make in my life? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes on our position in Christ. And guys, let me tell you something. If there is one thing that I believe is foundational in our life as believers. It's this topic that I'm going to talk to you about this morning. If there is one thing that we need to get firmly rooted in our heart, it is this idea of our position in Christ because we are no longer the same. 
The Bible talks about the old life. The Bible talks about the old man. The Bible talks about the old nature. But he also talks about that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That has been the work of the gospel. It is also the result of the redemptive plan of God that you all have already been studying about. So if I could ask you this morning for a few moments, if you turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to base our study this morning off of one verse, verse number 20. And if there is a verse in the New Testament that packs a punch about our position in Christ, it is this verse in Galatians 2.20. Paul is writing, he makes this statement, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, what a foundational statement that we have been crucified with Christ. That's what happens when you receive the gospel into your life. In the spirit realm, when you got saved, when you asked Christ to come into your life and you experienced the gospel, redemption took place in your life. You were literally in the spirit crucified with Christ because all of your sin was born by the Savior when he hung upon the cross. But that is a truth that that many believers, many Christians that have been saved for many years do not live in the reality of that. You can also call this the exchange life. We exchanged a life of sin for a life of grace. We exchanged a life of despair for a life of hope. We exchanged a life of bondage for a life of freedom. And that's what took place with the gospel. And there's many things that I want to be able to get us to understand this morning about our position. But let's just begin to go through these so I can build this systematically for you so you'll be able to have a concept when we get ready to go home here in a little bit. Number one, Christ destroyed the old nature on the cross. Now, the old nature, what are we talking about when we talk about the old nature? We are talking about the heritage of sin that we inherited when Adam fell in the garden. You realize that sometimes we think about sin as a behavior, but sin, when it talks about salvation, is actually a nature. It is actually a heritage that we carry with us. We do not sin to become a sinner. We sin because we are a sinner. And in our life, before we met Jesus, we lived in the ignorance of our darkness. Satan had blinded our minds to the gospel. You are now confronted with the reality of the gospel, and Christ illuminates your heart. You receive Christ into your heart, and you become a brand-new Christian, a brand-new creator. You are a believer in Jesus. When that takes place, we understand that the old nature had been dealt with. That old nature is very significant because because Adam fell in Genesis chapter 3, you take time to go back and read it sometime, that sin entered into the entire human race. That's why when you get to the book of Romans chapter 3, or in Romans chapter 6, when he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There was a death that was connected to that heritage of sin. And because of the reality of the gospel, we understand that Christ came and paid that debt that we could not pay. That's talked about in Romans chapter 6, verse number 6 and 7. He says, knowing this, that our old man or the old nature 
was crucified with him, talking about Christ, in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we're freed from the activity that sometimes prompts sinful behavior, but we are free from the power of sin that dominated our life and separated us from the love of God. So Christ destroyed that old man, that old nature upon the cross. Point number two, that God exchanges the old nature with a new nature. Now, when you write out beside in your notes, Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we're not going to take the time to read that, but it talks about the fact that that the old man was done away with, that all of the, the degrees of sin against you were taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 describes that in detail. So when Jesus died upon the cross, that old nature was crucified with him. And then God gave us a new nature to take the place of that old nature. That is what Galatians 2.20 is talking about when he says, Christ lives in me. Now, naturally, we realize that we were not physically crucified with Christ, but spiritually we were. When you received the gospel, when you received Christ into your life, you were crucified in him on the cross, and you became a brand new creation. So that old nature has been done away with, and Christ exchanges that with a brand new nature. Now, here's where the confusion comes in, because let me tell you how I was taught. I was taught that whenever you got saved, and I was taught this from a young age, all the way through Bible college, actually, in training for the ministry. And I've now been in the ministry for 37 years. And it took me a long time to get my mind around this biblical concept that God sees us differently after we get saved. Because I was taught like this, that you get saved and you do get a new nature, but that new nature comes to live alongside the old nature. The old nature is never really completely gone. The old nature is in there. That's why we still struggle with sin. So the new nature comes and lives coincide with the old nature, and they're just warring it out. They're just battling out the rest of our life. So therefore, all of the defeat that I experience, all of the failure that I experience, all of the lack of authority and power in my life spiritually that I experience, that is because I'm still tormented by that old nature. And what that means, if we believe that, is that salvation then becomes an add-on, and it does not become transformation. We realize that salvation, we were transformed. We are no longer the same. Our life has been made completely different. But if we believe that that old nature and new nature are living simultaneously within the same tabernacle of flesh and that battle is taking place, we have no ability to believe in victory. We have no freedom in our life. And the new nature is not going to coincide and live compatibly with that old nature. My brother is a mortician. I don't know why he chose that occupation. To this day, I don't know why he did that. You know, I can understand the difference of a mortician and a pastor. His people do not talk back whatsoever. I mean, they are just there. I mean, they're talking about a captive audience. 
But with they, he always wants to talk to me about when I die someday, what's going to happen and where I'm going to be buried because I've had ministries in different places. And, uh, you know, even though Paducah, Kentucky is my true hometown, East Texas really feels more like our home. So are you going to be buried in Kentucky? Are you going to be buried in East Texas? And I say, honestly, I've never really thought about it because I'm not going to be buried at all. And he looks at me and says, what do you mean? I am not going to the funeral home. I am going to the taxidermist. (laughs) And that's going to be my plan. I've told my wife that I am not going to be buried. I'm going to haunt her forever. (laughs) That I've got my favorite chair all picked out. I want her to have me stuffed, reclined in my chair. And all she's got to do is put a new USA Today newspaper in my hand every single day. Turn on the TV. Can you, now, can you imagine that? How stupid is that? And someday, if she ever met someone else, can't believe that would ever happen, but if she ever found somebody else, can you imagine the first time that guy ever visited her house? He walks in, and, you know, and there, there sees me laying, sitting in the chair, reading the newspaper, only I've been dead a long time, you know, but I just was not buried. Their relationship begins to get more serious. He asked her to marry him, and she said yes, but says, but, you know, I can't get rid of John. John's got to stay in that recliner, and the guy goes, you cannot keep him hanging around. We have to have a new life together. We are entering into a new relationship. Well, that's okay, but we've got to take him with us wherever it is that we go. So when they load up to go out to eat, they pick up John and put him in the back of the truck, and they take him with me. And we think, how stupid is that? But that's exactly what we are taught to believe about the new man and the old man. If God did away with the old man upon the cross and we were crucified with Christ, there is no way that the new man lives in compatibility with the old man in our spirit. The old man has been done away with. When you study the Scripture and you go to the book of Romans, you will find, especially in chapter 5, there are only two relationships that you can be in. You can either be in Adam, which means that you are lost, or you can be in Christ, which means that you are saved. In Adam, all had sinned and fell short of the glory of God. In Christ, all had been forgiven and all had been set free. In Adam, through his disobedience, all passed into sin. Through Christ, with his obedience, all passed into life. There's only one of those two. You cannot live in both. You cannot be partly saved and partly lost. We are either saved or we're lost. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And we either have a new nature or we have an old nature. We do not have both operating at the same time. Now, this is very important because it's where we really get sidetracked so much, which leads us to point number three, and that is the new nature is a work of the Spirit of God. There's something transacted in us when we got saved. We became a work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God now lives inside of us. I don't know how old many of you all are in here, but you're young adults, most of you, some of you a little bit older adults. But when I was in high school, I heard this truth for the very first time in my life, that the Holy Spirit of God lives in me, that I am the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. When I got saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence in me, and therefore what I am now is a work of the Spirit. So when God sees me, he sees me as spirit. He does not see me in all the failure of this flesh. He sees me through the finished work of Christ, 
through the blood of Jesus, and we are now identified as a brand new creation in Christ. And it really gets important because here's the the reality, that if we are not spirit, then we are not even really saved, that we have to be spirit to be a part of the family of God. You say, well, John, how do you know that? Write down Romans chapter 8, verse number 9. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, talking about the old nature, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him because the spirit of Christ is what makes all of the difference. We are not acceptable to God because of what we can do. And you all know that. You've learned that through your study on the gospel. You've learned that through your study about redemption, that we are not saved by our own merit. We are saved completely by the grace of God. And as a result of that, the Spirit of God lives in us, and therefore, as a believer, everything we do after salvation is a work of the Spirit. But here's the cool part. It also changes completely how God sees us. I love the way Tony gave that illustration a little moment ago with his daughter because I think many people struggle with the fact that God loves me. I think many people struggle with the fact that God unconditionally loves me because we have had conditional love modeled to us all of our life, that I will love you if you do so-and-so, that I will love you if you keep doing so-and-so. I will love you if you meet my need in this particular way. And God says, I just love you because I love you. And God says, I love you because I want to love you. And God says, I know all of your faults. I know all of your sin. I know all of your failures. But I want you to know that my love is not based on anything of that nature. It is based unconditionally before you before me. And what we have to understand is that God looks at you completely different. God sees you as his child now, and he no longer refers to you as a sinner. He refers to you as a saint. Now, don't get excited and walk around to all your friends and start making them call you that, all right? I mean, don't make them start calling you Saint Nick. That'd be a good one, though, wouldn't it? Especially at Christmas time. You could have a whole new career at Christmas time. Didn't even think of that when that, that came out. But you could be St. Nick and St. Tabitha, you know. And, uh, but we think, we think a saint means perfection. They just had a big thing in Rome last week about Pope John Paul and his beatification, the first step or the next step toward sainthood. But we think a saint means somebody that's perfect, somebody that doesn't have any faults. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says a saint is anyone that knows Christ as their Savior, anyone that has a relationship with Jesus. Now, let me show you something that's very significant. I don't want you to miss this. Because when you got saved, God looks at you now differently than he did before. In the Bible, you can look at, you can go through your concordance and search this out. But we have to understand that believers are called saints, holy ones, or righteous ones more than 240 times in the Scripture. Unbelievers are called sinners over 330 times. But you know what's amazing? Not one time is a believer ever referred to again as a sinner. He is referred to as a saint. Now, here's something I want you to really get in your mind this morning is that how many of you ever heard the saying, well, you know, I can't help it. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Anybody ever heard that statement as you're growing up? I've heard that all my life. Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And it sounds very humble. 
It sounds, well, you know, I just can't, you know, I don't want to puff myself up and build myself up because, you know, I'm just a lowly individual of except for God's grace, I wouldn't be anything. And in that essence, that's true. But you are no longer a sinner saved by grace. I heard a song not long ago, and the whole song was about just a sinner saved by grace and just made my skin crawl because that is not biblical. We are no longer a sinner saved by grace. Say, well, John, we still sin, don't we? Yes, we do. But that's because of the power of the flesh that is still alive until the day we go to be with Jesus. But it's not our nature any longer. It is the flesh that's influencing our behavior. We are no longer a sinner saved by grace. We are now a saint that sometimes sins. And there is a big difference in that. It is amazing to me that we always want to call people within the church. You know, the church can be the most judgmental place on earth. Have you ever noticed that? Now, I know you don't experience that in this place because they have worked very, very hard about forgiveness and acceptance and love as the foundation of what they do here. But most of you have been involved in churches where judgmentalism and criticism and condemnation is not foreign to that environment. So therefore, on one hand, we say, well, we're just sinners saved by grace. And then on the other hand, we judge people for acting like a sinner saved by grace. It makes no sense. It's like schizophrenia in the religious circle. On one hand, you're telling me, well, you can't help it. You're just a sinner saved by grace. And on the other hand, you're judging me and rejecting me because I acted like a sinner saved by grace. Which am I? Am I a saint that sometimes sin or am I a sinner saved by grace? The Bible says I am now a saint that sometimes sin. And my heart has been completely transformed. You know what you also can understand? You cannot consistently behave in your behavior in a manner that's opposite of what you truly believe about who you are. And I believe that has been one of the downfalls within the church is that we have not equipped people adequately with who they are in Christ, with what their identity is, with what their position is, with what God has actually done for them, and how that practically applies in their life. So the result of that is this. We've got churches filled this morning on Mother's Day with just a bunch of victims, and they live their life through a victim mentality. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always another reason. It's always something else that I can't help myself because that's just who I am. Can I just share with you? That's not who you are. That's not who you are. You have been transformed by the gospel. That's why the scripture talks about in, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are no longer that old man. We are brand new. Let me wrap this up in about five, six minutes. So you say, John, what does that mean? Then who are we? You know, if, that, if we are now spirit, what does that mean to us in our daily life? The first thing it means is we are forgiven. Every sin that you have ever committed. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus died upon the cross, how many of you all were alive and were there? Some of you look a little older, but I know you weren't that old. None of us were there. So when we were crucified upon the cross with Christ in the Spirit, how many of our sins were future tense? All of them. When Jesus died upon the cross, his blood was spilt to pay for all sin. We have been forgiven. 
God is not in the business of punishing you for things from your past that you did before you even knew God. When Jesus died upon the cross, you experienced forgiveness. Let me give you a scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know what's awesome? I am no longer in the kingdom of the world. I've been transferred. God gave me a promotion. He took me out of this darkness and brought me over and put me in the light, which is the kingdom of his beloved son. And now I cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's our relationship with God. Number two, the thing that we have experienced, we are now accepted. Boy, don't you just long to be accepted sometime? When you were growing up in high school, wasn't that just a pits? I mean, wasn't it just a bummer? I mean, you were always judged by these external things about what kind of clothes you wore and where you went and what kind of car you drove. Dude, I'm going to tell you, I drove a car that was held together with duct tape. I mean, I was not in that upper echelon of the cool car. My wife met me in high school. I met her in high school. Trust me, she was not attracted to my car. She was attracted to my awesomeness. (laughs) Somebody asked her one time, Carla, what is it attracted you to John? It was his brains. They said his brains. Yes, you know the way they say it. It's the little things in life that count. <laughs> but we long to be accepted. We want to be accepted. Man, well, our, our family moved around a lot. I went to six different schools before I was in fifth grade. I hated it. I despised it because you're always the new kid. And nobody wants to play with the new kid. And they've already got their friends formed and so forth. If I could give you a challenge as a church, never become a church of cliques. Never become a church where new people feel like they're on the outside looking in because nobody likes that. Everybody desires to be accepted. But the world judges us on three standards, how we look, what we have, and what we can do. God accepts us on the basis of what Jesus has already done. For us. And because of that, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, which is Christ. I no longer have to labor. I no longer have to earn my way into relationship with God because the blood of Jesus settled that acceptance with God on my behalf. Real quickly, number three, we are complete. We are complete. Now, you look around at yourself and think, surely this is not all there's going to be of me. I mean, surely I'm in process here. And you know that. We are in the process of becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. Philippians 1, 6 says that we can be confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're all in process. There's no reason for anybody that's a believer to be proud of where they are or to be built up in their own idea about what they've accomplished in God. It's all by His grace. But I'm going to tell you something. To know that you are complete, knowing that I do not have to try to earn God's love, that I don't have to try to base my relationship on performance, that God looks at me through the finished work of Christ and says, you are complete, not in yourself, but in the work of Christ that provided that completedness for you. 
Look at what he says in Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10. For in him, talking about Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, Christ, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Do you know what? You're as saved as you're ever going to get. You're as saved as you're ever going to get. I'm amazed that people say that we are saved by grace, but then they almost act like we are kept or improve our standing with God by works. That we earn these brownie points with God by the things in which we do. You know, that we gain God's favor by all the things in which we do. When God says, no, 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 no. You are complete because of what I have done on your behalf. It is not about you. It is about me. And because of what I have done in your life, you are found to be complete. There's only one more I want to share with you this morning. And this one just blows my mind. He says that we are righteous. Now, I don't know about you, but I got some issues in my life. Anybody else here that's got some issues in my life? I mean, I don't do everything perfectly. My family is here this morning. They could stand up and give you a rundown of everything that they have noticed and uh, that I do not do correct. And they would be somewhat probably very, very accurate, you know. But you know what? My righteousness does not depend upon doing everything right. My righteousness does not depend upon having to know all the answers. My righteousness does not depend on being able to dot every I and cross every T. My righteousness depends because I have been hidden away in Christ Jesus. And here's what happens. When God looks at John, And when God looks at me, he does not see me with all of my faults and all of my shortcomings and all of my failures. You know how he sees me? He looks through his perspective, and he sees John Offit completely covered over by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I am under the blood, because I am under the blood, I have been deposited in Christ. You know, there's many places in the Scripture where it says that, that we are now in Him, that we are in Christ, that we have the mind of Christ. Well, there's also a Scripture that says that we are the righteousness of Christ, which is an amazing thought when you really think about it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. If you could just stop right there and grasp that just for a second. Is that Jesus who never committed any transgression, not even in thought, much less in action, took on my sin and took on your sin and became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is that not amazing? So when we are walking in the reality of our position, the series that you guys are in right now is What About Me?, And God is wanting you to know that he has done a work in your life that has changed you completely. And I believe if we could ever get a grasp of this, if we could ever truly begin to live in the reality of it, it would completely transform the way in which we not only see our own life, it would change our perspective of God. I feel sorry for people who have this perspective of God that he is very, very distant that he is like the judge sitting upon the throne, just waiting for an opportunity to crack his whip and release judgment in their life and bring them back in this rigid line of, of rules and regulations that they've got to be able to live. 
You know, Galatians says it was for freedom that God set us free. Christ wants you to live free. But I'm going to tell you, after 37 years of ministry, I can speak this with great assurance, that the key to being able to live in freedom is understanding who you are in Christ, understanding what has been done for you. Have you ever heard those little voices of the enemy trying to speak condemnation into your life, especially when you make a mistake? Look at you. Who do you think you are? If people at church really knew who you were, they wouldn't even want anything to do with you. You're going to go this morning and lead worship. You're going to go this morning and teach. You're going to go this morning and act like nothing's been going on in your life. Who do you think you are? And, man, those voices just bombard us. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to listen to the voice, and we'll begin to believe the voice, and we'll begin to believe the lie. And if you believe the lie, then you'll, be able, then you'll begin to act upon that lie. The truth is all of that is from the pit, and Satan only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a substitute, and he is a liar, and we are to reject him. And how do we do it? I've prepared a sheet for you this morning. There are 77 statements on this sheet. We've got some laid up here on the, on the platform. Feel free to pick one up. They are 77 I am declarations of what the Bible says about who you are right now this very day. Man, do not be one of these Christians that keeps walking around thinking, well, someday we're going to die, and someday we're all going to go be with heaven, be in heaven with Jesus. And you know what? I'm glad we're going to heaven when we die, but that was not the sole purpose of you getting saved. There's a lot of stuff God wants to do through your life right now. Salvation is a reward, or heaven is a reward of your salvation. But what we are doing with Christ living through us right now today in Tyler, Texas, rubbing shoulders with people and letting Christ live through us, that is the calling of salvation. That is the power of the gospel. You need to know who you are in Christ. I encourage you to take one of these sheets, make it a part of your daily meditation with God, and when, the Satan, begin, when Satan begins to whisper in your ear, just begin to declare out loud who you are in him. There are probably people that pass me in my car that think I have lost my mind. There are probably people that are thinking, look at that guy. You know, and I don't even have one of those little Bluetooth things over my ears because those people crack me up. Really freaks me out when I'm in the bathroom in a public place and they're in there talking and I don't know, is he talking to me? Not the place to carry on a conversation with somebody you don't know. But I'll be in my car, and I'll just be, you know, I'll just be singing out loud as loud as I can, and Tony can verify that's the only place I need to be singing out loud is in my car where nobody else is. And then I'll just start declaring out loud who I am when Satan's beginning to torment my mind a little bit. And I know everybody beside me probably thinks, this guy has lost it. Stay away from him. Let him pass me because he's losing it. But in reality, that's our security, guys. That's our warfare. This is our tool chest. This is our weaponry. And every time Satan begins to speak over your life a word of condemnation, you need to be able to speak back to him the reality of what God says that you are. It'll change your life. Can I pray for you this morning? Then I'm going to turn it back over to Tony.